Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak to us. We ask that your voice would be louder than all of the other voices around us vying for our attention. We pray, oh God, that your voice would penetrate our hearts and that you would speak to us and that in speaking to us that you would renew our hope, that you would give us strength, that you would restore our confidence in the future, that you would remind us of your great love. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So last week, we began a new series entitled Wilderness. And one of the things that we pointed out last week is that wilderness, of course, in the biblical story, in the biblical imagination, is a place on the map. And so it is that space in between Egypt and the promised land. Uh, The wilderness is that stretch of barren wasteland. It is the place that Israel has to traverse if she's ever going to move out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so on the one level, uh, the promised land or the, or the, the wilderness is a place And uh, if you're kind of wondering what the wilderness might have looked like, here is a picture right here. You can kind of check that out. And one of the things you'll notice is something that a friend of mine who is uh, of Palestinian descent, who spent some time over in the region, told me. He said, look, you guys have so much cactus up there on your stage. He says, there is no cactus in the wilderness on Sinai. And so this is really, this right here, this is our, this is our, our California cowboy kind of interpretation of wilderness. And you're all good with that, aren't you? Yes. And, um, and so on the one level, the wilderness is the place on a map. It is that space between, between God's great redemption out of Egypt and the fulfillment of his promise in that land flowing with milk and honey that is full of abundance. But it is not only a place on the map, it is also a place we can find ourselves living You see, on one level, kind of at a macro level, as followers of Jesus, the place we inhabit in in one sense is the wilderness. This is where we live our life because we live our lives in between that great and better exodus from the powers of sin and death and darkness where God defeated the greater Pharaoh, where God brought his redemption through a better Moses, namely through Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross. And God brought us out of Egypt, and one day we will enter into that new creation, the new promised land. And so on one level, uh, as followers of Jesus, we spend our lives in the wilderness waiting to inhabit that new place where there is only love and justice and unity and love and peace. But I think on another level, and we talked about this last week, all of us can find ourselves in wildernessy experiences in life. You know, those places in our own life where it seems like we are wandering maybe through an emotional or a spiritual, or a relational, a marital, a barren wasteland, where it seems like those old sources of life and vitality that we found readily accessible are just no longer available to us. And we feel a little bit disoriented right now, out of sorts. We feel a little bit lost. We feel like, man, those, those spaces where my life felt you know, fresh and alive, it just seems like they're lacking. 
And of course, right now we find ourselves as a community together in a season like this, in this COVID time. You know, we, we live in some sense in between, you know, the recovery of the vaccine and the ultimate time where the vaccine will be implemented and we'll be able to get back to normal again. And we find ourselves living in the wilderness. And what's interesting, and we pointed this out last week, but it's important to note, is that the wilderness is a place that God can do work in us that he cannot do in any other place. There is stuff you need to have happen in your life. Uh, There are old patterns that you need broken. There are addictions that you need freedom from. Uh, There are habits of being maybe in your home or or with uh, your your family or whatever that need to be broken. And and, and, and there are new uh, places of faith that God needs to take you to. Uh, There are new things that God wants to reveal to you about himself. And the only place that that can happen is in the wilderness. It's interesting, you know, in the book of uh, Isaiah, there's these visions of uh, wellsprings breaking forth and of new flowers coming into bloom. And the place where it happens, according to Isaiah, the great prophet, is in the wilderness. Uh, The wilderness is a venue where God can do new stuff in our life. And I think maybe that's why when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was preparing God's people for the new thing God was going to do. And he needed to get us, he needed to get God's people ready for the, the inbreaking of God's kingdom in Jesus. The place where he called Israel was out into the wilderness. And of course, Jesus... After he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so the question that I just want to invite you to consider throughout this series is, what is the work that God wants to do in my life while I spend time in the wilderness? You know, I'm disoriented in my family. I'm disoriented with my parents. I'm disoriented. I graduated college. Uh, I I haven't got a job yet. It seems like it's not available. I'm trying to figure this whole thing out, and I feel like I'm in the wilderness what I want you to consider is that there is something that God wants to do in you. There is something that God wants to reveal to you in the wilderness. And so throughout this series, we're going to be dipping into little vignettes, little stories of how Israel encountered God in the wilderness, and it will teach us how God wants to encounter us in our own wilderness. And so this evening, I want to invite you just to explore one more of these stories. It's in Exodus chapter 16. And this one is where God reveals himself as the God who provides for his people in the wilderness. The story begins in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. Now, if you'll glance back just on the page before, it was Exodus 15, and there God had freed his people from the land of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea, took his people through on dry land. They sang, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. They get into the wilderness. They're like, oh no, who's going to give us water? And they start crying out, complaining to God. We looked at this last week, and God provided water in the wilderness. He turned, actually, the bitter waters, and he made them sweet, and then ultimately brought Israel to Elim, which was an oasis in the desert. But now we're moving away from the oasis, down, trekking through the harsh land on the way to Sinai. And it says this, verse 1, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt... 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Of course, we said last week, and we're going to see this in the weeks ahead, the most common verb to describe Israel as she is in the wilderness is the verb grumble. And often the grumbling is directed against their pastor. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then it says this, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, what are they grumbling about? Well, they're hungry. And of course, you can't complain that they're grumbling because when you're hungry, you complain, don't you? Don't look at me like that. I know you do. I know how you get a little bit frustrated. You get a little bit hangry. You're hungry. And it doesn't seem like there's anything in the house. You're like, there's no food in the house. You're grumbling, you know? And of course, the children of Israel are grumbling. But what's interesting is they don't just grumble here. I think in some ways what's surprising is, is not that they're grumbling for food. The surprising thing is how they're re-remembering their past life in Egypt. Did you notice that in the text? They look back and they're like, we don't have any food out here in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, they misremember what life was like in Egypt. What was life like in Egypt? Well, according to the children, it wasn't, there wasn't chains and taskmasters and whips and hard labor for which they didn't get compensated. There wasn't pain at the loss of their children. There wasn't all of that heartache and pain as they look back on that past that God brought them out of. Instead, how is it described? Oh, that we would be back in the land of Egypt where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. I read that and I was wondering this week, like, what are meat pots anyway? And then I had in my mind, I think it's like a crock pot or like a Dutch oven, better yet, like my La Crusette. And you brown that chuck roast or maybe a brisket or maybe uh, some pork shoulder. Are you feeling me, Luther? Some pork shoulder. And you set that thing in, in the Dutch oven. You cook it slow and low for about six, eight hours, and it comes out. And what do you got? You got a meat pot full of the most succulent, juicy, melt-in-your-mouth, falling-apart meat. Can I get a witness on that? They're looking back, and they're saying, that's what we had in Egypt. No, that's not what you had in Egypt. You are misremembering the past that God took you out of. And, you know, of course, the children of Israel, they're not the first, they're not the last of God's followers who misremember their past life outside of God. You know, you forgot just how verbally and emotionally abusive that old boyfriend was. And you think, oh, he was so nice. No, he wasn't. You forgot the hangovers and embarrassing yourself in front of your children when you got drunk. And you think, oh, I can have another drink. Or, 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 or you're misremembering what, what life was. Oh, I used to be able to spend all of my money on self and on vacations. And you forgot how empty inside you were before you started giving more of your wealth and your time and your, your money away. But be that as it may, the children of Israel, they grumble, they misremember the past but I want you to see what God does. God meets their grumbling with his own provision. Look what it says in verse 4. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, all right, you people, you people are hungry? Behold, he says, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And then skip down to verse 9. Look at what it says. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. The God who heard their cry of oppression in Egypt now hears their grumbling for food in the wilderness. And he says, come near before the Lord. He's heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The children of Israel, unbelieving and ungrateful though they were, expressing all of their grumblings and complaints, God responds with his own gracious provision. He says, you want meat? I'll provide you with meat. You need bread? I'm going to provide you with bread. God says, I hear, I see, I know what you need, and I am the God who provides. And notice his provision comes in both the evening and the morning. In the evening, he says, he's going to give them meat, and the meat's going to come from quail. Look at what it says in verse, 16, or verse 13. It says, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. Now, the bulk of the chapter is not so much concerned with the quail and with the meat. I'm a carnivore. I like meat. I would have made the whole chapter about the meat, about all the different ways the quail was prepared, blackened quail and sautéed quail and uh, quail eggs and um, all kinds of quail stuff, right? But, um, but the, the chapter is mostly concerned with the bread because the bread is ultimately what is going to sustain Israel for 40 years. It's going to be God's provision over the space of time in the wilderness. The quail, it just seems like it's just a little treat for Israel one night. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. It's interesting, you know, I was reading a couple of scholars this week that were talking about how there is a phenomenon uh, regarding quail who fly in these great flocks of uh, birds uh, traveling from Europe down to Africa. And on their journey, uh, they take their journey in two parts because it's a long way for a little bird to fly. And the little birds get tired and they usually take a break on the shores of the Mediterranean. And this provides ample opportunity for people to go and to capture birds with their hands and with their nets. And they can gather this up. And apparently quail is quite a delicacy. Uh, I've never had quails. Anybody here had quail? Quail egg, quail, yes. Of course, Larry James has. But, uh, but that's probably what happened here. You know, they, they see the quail. Maybe God is providing supernaturally through natural means. And the quail come in the evening. But then look at what it says next. Uh, the bulk of the chapter is really concerned with this bread. It says, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, do lay around the camp. So now he's going to start describing what he called earlier bread from heaven. He says, this dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the surface of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. 
And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord as God has given you to eat. It's interesting. It wasn't exactly obvious to them what it was. They were looking, they're like, what is that? And Moses is like, that's the bread God gave you to eat. It's right there. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Now, look back at verse 15. It says uh, their first reaction when they look down is uh, they say, what is it? And in Hebrew, uh, it's two words. It's the two words. It's man who. And uh, that word man, it, it can be translated as what. And then who is this? By the way, my sister is out here with us tonight. She is a Hebrew scholar. I get a little bit insecure when I start talking about Hebrew around my sister. So um, most of the time, none of you know whether or not I've mispronounced something. I can fool you, but I can't fool her. Have mercy, Kara. But they, they look at it. They say, man, who? What? This? <laughs> and it's interesting. Look at, at, at um, what it says down in verse 31. It says, now the house of Israel called its name manna or man who. It was coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So they call it man who, meaning what this? Because when they looked at it, they're like, what this? So let's call it just what this, you know? <laughs> just kind of funny, isn't it? I think it is. <laughs> now look down at verse 32. The story continues. Moses says this. This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. Verse 34, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Cana. Now, I obviously skipped over a bunch of uh, verses uh, earlier in the chapter. And what it was saying is uh, that God gives to Israel only enough manna for one day. And so each day of the week, they're only to take enough manna for that one day, except on Friday, they're supposed to take enough manna for two days, and then they can take a break on the Sabbath and not gather any manna. And Israel, at first, they don't trust God. They're like, oh no, if we don't gather on Saturday, there's not going to be enough, and they gather it up. Or if they think, they think if we don't gather enough on the week, we're not going to have enough, and then they gather too much, and it all rots, and it goes bad, and Israel learns obedience to the commands of God, and they wind up gathering just enough for each day. And so what they learn by gathering on Friday, but not Saturday, by gathering enough, but not too much, they learn not to hoard more than their daily bread, but to take what they need and trust there'll be more for tomorrow. Now, three books later, in Deuteronomy 8, the wilderness wandering has finally come to an end. The children of Israel are on the very cusp of entering into the promised land. And Moses stands before his people and he makes explicit to them what lesson God wanted to teach them and us through this manna feeding. And it says this, verse three, 
And God humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man or humanity does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wants to teach us human beings that we can't just live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is not just food that sustains us as human creatures. It is the very promise of God given to us in Jesus Christ. This is our sustenance in the wilderness. But you know, there is actually a more basic lesson that the Israelites learn in this story. And the lesson that they learn is simply this. God can be relied upon in the wilderness to provide. God can be trusted to provide what you and I need, even in the most difficult and barren times. We can trust that God knows, that God sees, and that God will provide for us. But what I want to do now is I just want to, I just want to kind of drill this down, drill down a little bit on this. And I want us just to note three things about this very unique and strange provision of God in the wilderness. This uh, very peculiar provision that God gives manna. And the first observation I want to make is this. Manna is strange. Manna is strange. Now, some of you may remember me talking about this before, uh, but uh, some scholars suggest that manna was actually the secretion of a certain bug that lived parasitically on local tamarisk trees. And I'm not kidding, because the sap of the trees is so low in oxygen, the bugs would have to eat like crazy to get proper nutrition, and they would secrete out these white, yellowish balls of liquid that would fall to the ground and quickly dry into flakes. And it was light, it was flaky, it was nutritious, it was sweet, and it would appear in the morning, but by the end of the day, it would be ruined, it would be eaten by ants and whatnot. And actually, the nomadic Bedouin tribes to this day who live in the region have long eaten a substance they call manna, and it is precisely secreted bug juice. I was reading an article a while back in The New Yorker, and it was talking about uh, a, a, a kind of a, a, a niche restaurant in uh, Manhattan that was imported, it was importing freeze-dried uh, manna, and they had a picture in the article, and it looked like this, which I just think is interesting. Now, whether or not this is what the manna was that was provided for Israel in the wilderness, I don't know, but whether or not you will notice manna is strange. When they see it appear on the ground, uh, they say, man, who? What, what is this stuff, you know? Like, it's, it's not even clear it's edible, let alone the bread of God promised to rain down from heaven. Ma Moses has to tell them, this is the bread God has given you to eat. He has to tell them because it's not at all obvious. And they ended up calling it manna, which again comes from that question, what forever marking these edible flakes with their initial confusion? Listen, the provision of God in the wilderness is strange. It is not what they were expecting. Had they not been told by Moses that this was bread from God, I suppose they may have died of starvation. Their corpse is strewn across the field that is covered in food. 
So number one, manna is strange. Second observation, manna is not promised land food. Manna is not promised land food. Look again at verse 35. It says, the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then uh, a little bit later in Joshua 5, verse 12, it makes a similar point. It says this, And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. Now, why did the manna cease? Why didn't they keep eating it when they went into Canaan? Well, one obvious answer, and this surfaces a little bit later in the wilderness wanderings, the children of Israel are absolutely sick of the stuff. They get to a point where they're like, not manna again. You know, we've been eating manna bread and, and manna pudding and manna cotti and all kinds of manna. That was so bad. But, you know, you got to throw that stupid, cheesy preacher stuff out every now and again. And, um, but, but they're just tired of the stuff. When they get to the land of Cana, like things are much better. Listen to the description of the land, the food that they're going to receive in Canaan. Look what it says. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and of pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat your bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God in the good land that he has given you. And when they get to Canaan, it's just going to be just a land that's flowing with abundance, you know, and there's, there's variety, which is, it's the spice of life, and there's all kinds of different meals that they're going to be eating, in Canaan, but not in, in the wilderness. It, they eat man, man is not promised land food. Man is not promised land food. But, third observation, manna will sustain you in the wilderness. Every day when they woke up and looked on the ground, they saw food. The food was enough. The food was exactly what they needed to sustain them in the wilderness. And so those are the three observations. Number one, manna is strange. Number two, manna is not promised land food. And number three, manna will sustain them in the wilderness. And now what I want to do is I just want us just to think real practically about God's provision in our own life as we walk through those desert, barren, difficult seasons of our life. And uh, I just want you to think a little bit about manna and how God provides for us in these seasons of life. First, I mean, very often, the provision that God brings in your life to get you through the wilderness is strange. You know, right now, many of you are spending more time with your family than you've spent in years. Some of you, you had to move out with roommates. You had to move back in with your parents again. Uh, some, uh, you've, you've, you know, you're, you're, you're schooling your kids at home and you're, you're, you're with your family all the time. And there used to be these breaks and, and, and you're just seeing, you're seeing your parents more. You're seeing your kids more. You're seeing your siblings more. And, and you just think, these people are strange. Can I get a witness? There's, you know, like, like you think like these, they're, they're strange. 
And, and it's not just the people around us that we can think like they're, they're weird, they're, 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 they're strange because they're other, they're different than us. Like the, the people in this church are strange. Sometimes we feel that way. Your pastor's strange, you know I mean? But you know, don't you ever get, what do you, did you just say a amen? She did. She works for me. I don't, I, she's been seeing way too much of me, see? And, um, but you know, do you ever, do you ever like, you, you, you go to church and, and sometimes, have you ever had the thought, I mean, in, in all of your years of being, you know, kind of a Christian and, and, and being a part of a church, if that's, you know, kind of like you're a church-going person, do you ever come home from church sometimes and think, you know, people, church people are strange? Have you ever had that thought? And it's, of course, it's not just church people that are strange. I mean, it's the door saying so long ago, people are strange. When you're a stranger's faces look wicked when you're alone, when you're a stranger. People are strange. Yeah, anyway, we got it, right? Doors. And you know what? Um, Quite frankly, the provision that we have right now in how we're doing church it's strange. You are sitting in a circle right now with a face mask on. And, you know, when you sing, it's like your breath is coming right back at you. And you're like, I am in a circle and I'm spread apart from people. And this is weird. And uh, maybe you're sitting at home and you're like, you know, online church, it was, it was good for a little bit. You know, it's nice. You know, it's kind of novel to be in my PJs eating my sausage and eggs. But you're just like, Church on TV is just not church. So the provision God has given to us is strange. And, and, and the, the people around us, uh, the, the church community we're a part of, um, sometimes our family, uh, the, the way we're, we're, we, we do church sometimes, it's, it's, also, it's also not promised land food. You know, there's that great quote from C.S. Lewis, where he said, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You were made with desires and longings that will, not, that will never be met in the wilderness. It will only ultimately and finally be satiated in the promised land when you enter into the very presence of the true and living God, when your old sins and all of the, the, the junk in your life, when that is finally burned away and we are caught up into union with our Father and we are brought into the very glory and the presence of God, then ultimately those deep longings in your heart will ultimately be satiated. But those longings, those expectations they're not fully and ultimately met in this life. And the reality is, is far too often we can expect too much from this life, too much from people. You know, it was interesting. I remember years ago doing some research on the science of happiness. And one of the things that almost everybody says across the board when it comes to the science of happy is that after a certain amount of, of uh, at a certain, after a certain income level, and it's typically kind of around like $60,000, $70,000 a year, like middle class. That's more like, Ameri- like general American middle class. That's not Southern California middle class, is it, people? But after a certain level, the, 
amount of happiness that you have for each additional like income bracket you move up, it, it, it has no material difference on how happy you are. And the reason that the scientists or the social scientists give for this is they say that at each new level you reach, you expect that life is going to give you more because you're making more, you've got a nicer car, nicer vacations, and it only creates an opportunity for you to be more disappointed. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should set your expectations low. You should have high expectations for yourself. You should have idealistic goals for the kind of marriage you want to have or the kind of person you want to be or the, the kind of you know, uh, career you want to pursue or the kind of student you want to... Like, you should have idealistic goals. But just recognize that those things are not the God who made you and they ultimately will never satiate those deepest longings in your life. So they're not promised land food, but, but get this. The people that God has brought into your life, the friends he has given you, deficient though they are, the family he has put, brought around you, as problematic and dysfunctional as they are sometimes, um, the, 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 the church community he's brought you in, yeah, it's strange, it's not promised land food, but it is what God has given to sustain you and I in the wilderness. You know, they will not satisfy your every longing. They will not save you or redeem you. They will not treat, take you into the promised land, but they will sustain you in the wilderness. God has given you people in your life. He's given you experiences in your life to nourish you and to sustain you. And listen, if you need something different you know, in your life. I mean, don't misunderstand me. If you need something different in your life, don't just suck it up or be happy or settle or stay put. Uh, I'm not saying all of that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to like seek more for like a, a deeper experience or fulfillment in, in all of the different stations of life. But what I am saying is something that Moses had to chill, tell the Israelites. Make sure that you look down. Make sure that you are not forever staring in the sky and asking God when he is ever going to feed you because often there is food all around. And it may not be what you were looking for. It may not be what you were expecting or what you would design as your own meal plan. But don't forget to look on the ground because there is on the ground is the stuff of the providence of God. It is the very gracious provision of God. You know, in um, the Seder meal within Jewish communities, they have this practice where uh, they, they have this, this little like riff in the, in the uh, Seder service where they, they say dayenu. And the word dayenu, it simply means it is enough. And they go around and they, they do this, this, sometimes it's sung or chanted or spoken, but it goes something like this. If God had only delivered us from Egypt, but had not parted the, Dead sea, the Red Sea, it would have made, made enough. If God had parted the Red Sea, but not taken us through on dry ground, it would have been enough. If God had taken us through the dry land, 
but not fed us with manna in the wilderness. Dayenu, it would have been enough. If, if God had only given us manna in the wilderness and had not taken us to Sinai and given us his good law, Dayenu, it would have been enough. And then it says, but, but thanks be to God, blessed be he. He has given us this and so much more. And I think what this story is inviting us to do tonight, what it's inviting us to do today, what it's inviting us to do in the wilderness is to pause and to say, Dayenu. It's to say, God, you have given me so much and what you have given me is enough. God, I am well provided for. God, I am well cared for. God, you are sustaining me. God, you have given me, I'm not in the promised land, but what you have given me is enough. You know, one more thing about manna. It's interesting, he says earlier in the story that when manna would, uh, in the morning, when manna would appear, Moses says, there you would see the glory of God. He says, in the manna, that's appearing on the ground, you're going to see the glory of God. And then the glory of God appears in this cloud. The very presence of God comes among the people. Because Moses is saying, look, God is not just giving you food. God has given you more than food. God has given you his very self. And of course, years after this, Jesus would come on the scene and he would say to the children of Israel again, he would say to all of us, I am the bread of God. I am the manna of God that's come down from heaven to nourish and sustain you. Jesus is promised land food and he is the best bread you will ever eat. In Jesus, you find the full presence of God. In Jesus, you find reconciliation and healing with God. In Jesus, you find utter security in the love of God. In Jesus, you find the ultimate and true and final and eternal manna that will sustain you now and all the way into eternity. You know, we close today by sharing in the bread and the cup. And so this time, I want to invite our band to come up and it's in this very practice, it's in this very practice Jesus gave to the church to remind us that as we journey together between the great exodus that Jesus has enacted in his cross and resurrection on our journey to the final and ultimate promised land, that what sustains and nourishes us is Jesus' gift of his very life and of his self that came to us, that walked among us.